But time now to reflect on us in 2023 and maybe read the tea leaves for next year. Was 2023 a particularly big one? I mean, it's an open question. We came off the back of two years of COVID dislocation. and Out of that frying pan, we jumped into the inflation fire. Interest rates and housing issues dominated, while many of us seemed to be reviewing the way we wanted to live post-pandemic. thought there was a lot of that. The voice referendum was simply unforgettable, as was the Women's World Cup, obviously in very different ways. Events overseas certainly challenged our serenity, especially the war in Ukraine and then, of course, the truly shocking turn of events in the Middle East, events that have spilled over into our community attitudes and caused enormous shock, which is far from over. So joining me for a good wrestle with all of this is Sean Kelly, columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers and a political columnist. Parnell Pame McGuinness, who's also a prominent newspaper columnist and managing director of strategy and policy at campaign firm Agenda C, and Claire Kimball, founder of the online media group The Squiz. She was a one-time media advisor to Tony Abbott before going into business and then into the media. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Now, Claire, I'm going to start with uh, cost of living because I think for a lot of people that is what is dominating them, especially as they're sort of working out how much they can afford Christmas. Do you think people are losing, have lost any confidence in the idea of equality in this country, which has been so fundamental to our sense of ourselves? It's a really good question, Geraldine, and I think certainly something that we're going to continue to confront, I think, over the coming months. I think one of the interesting parts of these interest rate rises that have of course, led to a lot of the discussion around this has been this question of this lag. And it kind of feels like I think now things are starting to bite. So I think we're only really at the start of this conversation. Um, certainly where I live, I'm in an absolute bubble of high income. Uh, I think when we get out to the suburbs, um, it's a very different conversation about cost of living. We're certainly seeing that in the numbers. Um, I think the challenge will be for our policymakers um, to get out of their bubbles and really understand what is going on on the ground. And do you think it is intergenerational or not? Uh, look, I, I think it's probably intergenerational, regional. Um, I think there are so many layers to this that are really complicated. Uh, I think we're obviously going to get a, a view into that when we head into election cycles, Queensland next year. Uh, for example, will be a really interesting one because I think cost of living uh, will be a complex matrix across all of that. Um, I think how politicians deal with this and how they target their messages and their support will be really interesting to see. See, I mean, it's interesting, Parnell, that um, this year the Reserve Bank of Australia certainly came into focus. I don't think quite like ever before. And Philip Lowe, who probably uh, didn't suspect in January that he'd be described as, quotes, the most hated person in Australia in a few months' time, he made, uh, you know, a rather disconsolate, I'd say, exit from the RBA in September, making way for his deputy, Michelle Bullock. Now, do you think that this circuit breaker of putting a person in charge, very much, you know, a woman in charge, but coming from within? Do you think that's worked in the minds of Australians? 
Look, I think it'll help in the sense that any change after a moment like that really helps. So people were starting to blame Philip Lowe for something that wasn't beyond that was beyond his control because he made a mistake in communicating it early on and said that he couldn't, you know, that that interest rates would stay low and of course then he couldn't he he said, well, nobody should have relied on that. And so there was a kind of anger towards him personally. I think a circuit breaker works in the sense that people now feel they they can't blame Michelle Bullock personally. They now understand that there are bigger factors at work that she's dealing with. So, of course, that doesn't mean that she's going to just be able to bring down interest rates, um, as she's made very clear. She has. Although, I mean, I think it was just that, that his certainties or perceived certainties um, encouraged people. It was a sort of an, exa- an example of authority structures in Australia. I thought, oh, right, OK, we're on, you know, it's OK. And a lot of people borrowed to for, for uh, real estate in- involvement. So, I mean, it, all of that had to be reassessed, I think, by Australians. Yeah, that's right. And that's why a lot of people are really hurting. I mean, first of all, it really hurts when you've made the decision to buy and then you all of a sudden have to reassess and think, can I afford this? Or all of a sudden your budget is pushed in a way that you just never expected it to be because you relied on this idea. Now, I hope that's cured us for a couple of decades on relying on forecasts like that because we really never should. Um, but yeah, for the moment, it's causing people a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. I think that things will start to turn around on that next year, but it'll take a while until it hits people's hip pockets mm. and things get a little bit easier. I mean, Sean Kelly, the the government's attempted to tackle the lack of affordable housing, which I think is just, you know, that has emerged as a major, major conversation this year in a way that slightly surprised me through the Housing Australia Future Fund, which passed through Parliament in September. Um do you, how do you think that is being received in terms of the, the way the politics uh, turned out? The Greens pushed really hard on this issue, and you can remind us a bit about that if you like. Do you think they got credit for that policy? Was it Labor or the Greens who got credit for that policy? Well, look, to, to start with, I think this is an indication of something broad that is going on, which is that as inflation, <coughs> so excuse me, mm. as inflation has kicked in, as prices have risen, what's that done? What that's done, I think, is torn away the feeling that Australians have had for a number of years that fundamentally this is a very wealthy country. Fundamentally, pe- people are doing okay, and as that's happened, I think that has placed a spotlight on the many areas of the country in which cracks have been developing for quite some time. Housing is one of them, schools are another, uh, our health system, GPs, bulk billing is another. I think while everybody felt wealthy, they could kind of forget about those things, but now they're really focused on them. So in a way, I think inflation has turned all of our attention to inequality and housing is the really big one. I've had two former uh, Labor colleagues mentioned to me this last week that they think housing could easily kill the government. And by that, they mean a lot more needs to be done in this space, which is not to say that the government's uh, achievement with the the housing fund was insignificant. It probably is a pretty smart policy, fairly large policy. Uh, What I think was really interesting politically is I actually think the Greens did Labor a bit of a favour here. I think Labor has a a habit of almost trying to to sneak policy through, of designing policy so that it's large enough to to do something but small enough such that nobody really fights it. And I think the downside of that is that nobody's noticed a lot of Labor's achievements. Uh, And I think the Greens in opposing this, even though it frustrated Labor enormously, I actually think they put it up in lights and made it seem much, much bigger than it would have if it had just passed 
uh, at the first go. And you don't think that, um, you know, that whole other idea that's dogged them, that Labor and the Greens are always in bed together and that, that that's not going to bite them? Uh, no, I mean, I think in a, in a way the opposite. I think the Greens opposed it longly, loudly, strongly enough that there was some distance there. Okay. Uh, I, I think that type of um, dispute might... Um, might kind of arc up as we get closer to an election. There's obviously a lot of talk about minority government. It's it's a very real possibility that Labor will be, will be pushed into minority government. And so I think we'll see that debate flare again in the lead up to the vote. Yes, we'll come back to some of the election things. I, I did want to talk about another thing that had emerged during COVID, uh, really the year of the side hustle, Claire Kimball. Record numbers of young people, uh, apparently about 7% of 20 to 24-year-olds, and many not so young people, they can't afford to live without a second or a third job. Do you think the side hustle is here to stay. Do you think it changes us as a as a community a bit when so many people are working more than one job? Yeah, and record numbers of women as well heading into that space. Um, look, it's fabulous that people have opportunities to pursue whatever dream it is that they have to build a business or to work more if that's what they want to do. But certainly it's got to be part of the discussion, doesn't it, about work-life balance, how we families, how we manage all of those pressures that we have in our daily lives, because not too long, we'll have conversations about health and well-being. Um, getting the balance right is really tricky. Obviously, in cost of living pressured situations, um, people will want to get more money through the door. And it's great that there are opportunities to do that. Um, but I think it has to be balanced with that conversation about what's good for our communities and what's good for us personally. Yes, I must say, Parnell, I, I feel anyway, having, you know, you read things on LinkedIn, lots and lots of people leaving, making choices. Now, maybe it's being made for them. They, they don't <laughs> spell all that out. But really, the, the, the wording is different to the past in terms of it's almost like people have been disrupted. And then they're thinking, well, this, how do I really want to live? I mean, it doesn't quite tally with the idea they've got to earn more in order to no, live no. where they are. So they must be making some pretty big changes. Yeah, and I think we really have to draw a distinction between a side hustle and a second or third job because it's a really different concept. The side hustle tends to be the passion project or the thing that you really want to be in that you add on. So you take on extra work deliberately, understanding that this is going to take you into a pathway that you want to go in. Whereas a second or third job is really about servicing the mortgage or, you know, meeting the cost of living. And so there's a completely different feel to that. And I think, yes, language has changed during COVID. Our, our whole concept of how we want to live our lives changed during COVID. You know, how much time we want to spend at home with the puppy, how much time we want to spend in the office, all of these things. And so these different side hustles are making, designing your own life possible for people who are lucky enough to have a passion like that that can be monetized. Yes, let me tell listeners, Sean Kelly, Parnell McGuinness and Claire Kimball are our guests to do a review of the year. And um, I want to look at another one, the, the, the PwC crisis, the Pricewaterhouse, the consultancy crisis, let's call it that, was certainly one of the defining stories of the year. But what 
I felt it was the focus on ethics, the ethics of the world of capital, um, which you could feel that organisations like the Financial Review hated it because they felt you couldn't possibly defend it in any way, treating the government and us, the taxpayers, as if we were sort of muppets. Now, I wonder, Sean Kelly, how you how you assess the, the longer-term impact of this uh, or medium and longer-term impact of this PwC drama. I think this was really unexpectedly huge. I remember talking to uh, a pollster who was doing focus groups just after the budget on that. It was about the budget. And he said what one of the things they were hearing from voters was that uh, was that all about PwC, you know, really nothing at all to do with the budget, but they were they were absolutely red hot furious about it, uh, describing the the big dogs uh, getting getting ill gotten gains. Uh, so I think it is a long running thing. I think it is part of uh, a trend that we've seen over the last five to ten years. The, the push for the Banking Royal Commission, which of course the Morrison government, uh, or I think the, maybe the Turnbull government at the time, resisted very strongly uh, and ended up putting in place. I think that move against the banks, the fact they couldn't resist that in the end, was a very strong pointer to how poisonous this sense of corporations uh, I guess for, for, uh, exacerbating inequality can be. I think there is a, a greater suspicion of business and I think this ties into um, this ties into the discussion about inequality. It ties into the discussion about side hustles and second and third jobs uh, with, with I think this um, this increasing sense that people are distrustful of employers wanting to drain every last bit of, of blood from the stone and people really pushing back against that and saying, well, if I'm never going to be able to buy a house anyway, which it has long been the great Australian dream, if I am working all these days without actually getting a foothold on the ladder, then what is the point? I'm not going to I'm not going to give you my firstborn child. And I think all of those are really part of the same picture. Actually, we just had a very interesting text come in. Geraldine, I've been moved I've moved to regional Victoria earlier this year. We've seen and felt people's anxieties. We meet people of thirty and over who have two or more jobs. When asking my daughters if any of their friends have a lunch order day, whereby we give them money once a week to buy lunch at the school canteen. They say none of them do. We're an exception, Mum, was their response. See, these little, these little stories, you know, um, they are undoubtedly mm. changing people's, um, well, I think probably quite deeply, actually. And in fact, just, I mean, there are so many aspects of that PwC thing that I think, you know, we haven't seen nearly the, f- the full ramifications of. But Claire, one of the things I noticed was uh, the women who did particularly well, the Deborah O'Neills, the Barbara Pococks of the world sitting there in Parliament, it was really striking, I thought, how they doggedly went on. They were so clearly on message and on task, you know, and you did feel that they were on our side, I thought, anyway. Anyway, on our side. Yeah, and look, I think it's a really good point, Geraldine, because through some of these issues, we do get to see some of the really great work, particularly of individual senators. This is what they're there to do. They're there to actually probe some of these big policy questions um, and shine a light on some issues that does need attention. So, yeah, I agree. I think that was fabulous to see. What I want to see um, the extension of this conversation is not just how the government actually deals with consulting firms, um, whether it be the big four um, or whether it be in a broader sense, whether we get into the McKinsey's and the Boston consulting groups and all of that mm. sort of um, that whole train, um, how they deal with 
business as well, I find extremely interesting. I remember when I was the Director of Communications at Woolworths, um, coming from a political background and trying to understand how a firm that was actually uh, running their eye, doing the audit on the whole financial situation of the company to report to shareholders, uh, and then with this Chinese wall on the other side and saying we have no reference or absolutely, you know, there's no favours that we're going to be doing you in your audit, but here's tens of millions of dollars to consult on the other side and they have no relationship to each other. I find it intriguing and I think it's one of these things. It's not just government and taxpayers' dollars. Um, these are big companies who are getting advice uh, from these firms and shareholders' money is tied up in this, of course, through the big companies where in these companies through our superannuation. Uh, I think exactly how these consulting firms deal with us as a whole economy is really mm. interesting. It is indeed. Now, I'm just looking at the time and I want to get through, I particularly want to get to the voice uh, to Parliament. Um, and I wonder if we have confronted the reality of that vote and, I mean, what the result meant to Indigenous Australians. Um, it was, you know, the, in, it, in its own strange way, the Israel-Gaza war sort of became so big and it dominated headlines that um, the media got very caught up with it. I wonder, Parnell, do you believe that we have... Have we wrestled with the aftermath of that or not? Do we need to? Of the referendum? Yes. No, I don't think we have properly yet. And I think that the government really does need to do something about this because you can't just sort of quietly move on from a big moment in history like this. What it showed, among other things, is how much work there is to be done in the Indigenous space and how much does how much focus that area does need. We can't just now move on and say, oh, well, the referendum didn't get up, so we no longer look at closing the gap. We no longer look at the disadvantage. I hope what it does is put a greater focus on those communities and what can be done specifically. Look, you know, the whether the voice ref, whether the voice mechanism was the right one or not is a you know a question that's been decided by the Australian people. But at a community level, there are things that do need to be looked at. I think that we need, you know, we almost need a truth-telling, not just on Indigenous history and the history of settlement. We need a truth-telling of current structures and what is wrong with them and why they are actually still holding Indigenous people back from joining society or from realising their aspirations. Mm, be very, I mean... I wonder if you think, uh, Sean, that the loss of the referendum really did hurt Albanese politically or robbed him of confidence or what? Uh, because it, it it does seem to be a more, oh, what is it, sort of the environment post that referendum is different, let me put it that way. Look, this is a really tricky question, Geraldine. Uh, I, I think it did in the sense that the government had spent months with the focus on this. And I don't mean that it was the only thing the government was doing. In fact, they were going to lengths to make it clear they were trying to do other things, but inevitably the political focus was on this. So I think there was a sense of the government being focused on that. Then, as, as you say, the, the events in Gaza and Israel uh, occurred. And then you also had this High Court decision on immigration and detention. And I think all of that has meant that there has been a focus away from issues that the government uh, would ordinarily like to talk about. But uh, I think when you're talking about polls, it can often be, it's, it's a mistake a lot of us make of saying, well, these things happened and the polls have gone down. I realise you weren't saying this. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, those two things are connected. Um, I've been looking at 
fundamental drivers of polls, and one of them across the world is inflation. There's a uh, there was one recent study by the Eurasia Group, for instance, that said. Uh, Typically, at elections, governments turn over 40% of the time, but if an election is held within two years of a spike in inflation, then governments turn over 80% of the time. Governments lose, right, it doubles that loss rate. And so it, one of the big things that's happening at the moment, I think, is simply inflation. There's only so much the government can do about that, but that then feeds a political narrative that the government is down. It feeds a political narrative of the government struggling, and governments uh, tend to struggle more when they are placed within that narrative. Now, um, that shouldn't be taken as an endorsement of everything the government's doing. I think the government has made some significant mistakes in the last few months, and it needs to get its act together on various fronts. Uh, but I, I think we need to be nuanced in the way we discuss what's currently going on. Well, I mean, instant Jim Chalmers, you know, was writing yesterday in the paper, um, it, we've got low unemployment, workforce participation around record highs, more than 620,000 jobs created since we came to office, a pickup in wages growth, an expected return to annual real wages growth next year. Now, that's, you know, a Labor government should be able to um, be happy about that. It just doesn't quite feel like that. Well, this, I mean, this comes to this two-year lag effect of an inflation spike. It takes people a very long time uh, to start to feel like things are shifting. And there's a big debate about this in America at the moment. And, and a theory that a lot of people put forward is that people's memory of prices is very laggy. So they tend to remember what prices were two or three years ago and think of that as normal. And so then it takes a couple of years to move beyond that and to accept the new normal. Uh, and so uh, that means that that story that Labor wants to tell, I think, probably won't really settle in uh, for another year or so if Labor are lucky. Uh, and that is absolutely what Labor is hoping for. They are hoping that the um, that the fact that rates seem to be coming down uh, in America, inflation's coming down, will start to happen here as well, that rates will come down, that wages will stay steady or continue to rise, that inflation will come down, that mm. unemployment won't go up too much, which is the is the forecast at the moment. And if all of those things come together, then in a year, I think that could well come together pretty well for Labor, but I think it will. they will have to write it out until then. Look, I just do want to talk about one of the points you raised, um, and I'll ask you first, Sean, about um, uh, the lack of debate or a lack of confidence in being able to argue your point in public life. And you think, you know, you think there are sort of vacuums that can develop and they're bad everywhere, and we seem to have become terrified of a actually debating. And this whole, um, you know, the Penny Wong uh, Albanese discussion uh, about voting in the United Nations to uh, call for a ceasefire. That seems to be an example. They don't even want that in the, in the party rooms. What do you think this is all about, Sean? Look, I, th I think there are a few different things going on. I think partly the media environment has become incredibly fast, incredibly polarised, incredibly furious. Uh, I think the government in its approach to political debate is scarred by its experience of uh, of the Rudd-Gillard government. Of course, many ministers have carried on. And you saw a few kind of stop-start debates at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year over the Stage 3 tax cuts, over Jim Chalmers' essay in the monthly, over superannuation. And all the every time that a government, that a debate has seemed about to kind of erupt into something, the government has shut it down. And maybe that's smart political management, but also maybe it's a bit of timidity uh, and fear of letting a debate okay. actually fl flourish, I suppose. But 
then you also have, I think, this horrible thing that's happening, which is that um, people are people are pouncing on coded language. I think people are too willing to pounce right now. We are not willing to uh, to hear what other people are saying, to listen and to ask ourselves questions about why they might be saying it. We want to, we want to jump to judgment right away, and I think that's causing a... And shout. I mean, it's like. interesting, Parnell, because you wrote recently about how, in fact, we've done a lot that's so right about multicultural uh, behaviour and activities and that a lot of Europe could learn from us. So uh, this this plays into what Sean's saying, doesn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we've lost a lot of confidence in talking about what we've done right precisely for the reason that Sean mentioned, that people will pounce on language and accuse it of being somehow loaded or a dog whistle in some ways. But really what Australia has done right over many decades is integrate migrants, welcome them, make them part of community and say, when you come here, you leave your ethnic tensions at the door and you become part of a bigger whole, which is Australia. Now that I, I would say that, that the sense of that that is an expectation has softened over the last over the last decade or so, but it used to be very strongly the case. And Europe is just realizing how important this is. So Europe has a has appointed a vice president for um, immigration for for the whole EU, and they've created an immigration and asylum policy for the entire bloc now. And part of that is they are also championing the European way of life. They're saying if you come here, you're coming for the European way of life, which is really a popular way of saying a liberal democracy. And, you know, that is really, really important because there is something that we enjoy here and that Europe, of course, sort of pioneered but lost control of its borders a bit and lost control of this sense of self-confidence, which is tolerance, living together peacefully, all of these wonderful things that come under liberal democracy. And they are realising that they've got to turn things around and start integrating people better and start making them part of this cohesive whole at the same time as Australia is forgetting that the cohesive whole is so much more important than the sum of its parts. Mm. Claire Kimball, how do you see this? Uh, Geraldine, I am absolutely thrilled. I'm, I don't know how you feel, Sean. We sort of crossed over our time uh, working as press secretaries in at the federal government level. I'm delighted not to be there. <laughs> absolutely delighted not to be a press secretary these days because I think it would be a really tough job um, for all the reasons that, that Sean and Parnell have very eloquently put. Um, I think pursuing arguments are, are just really, really difficult. Um, Although, I mean, looking back on the year and looking at the people who have really become people, I think, in our public minds, just... Um, say that again, really please. You just example. Say that again, please. Who? Sorry, Jacinta Price. Oh, Jacinta Price. Is a, a really mm-hmm. interesting... Right. Yeah, a really interesting example who has put a very strong position forward. She didn't go backwards at all in anything that she was arguing around the referendum and around Indigenous politics. She was sort of comfortable um, with being divisive places. in a way, wasn't she? In some ways you could say she she lived, she sort of thought that, you know, the sun is going to go down and people are not going to like me um, and it'll come up tomorrow. And this is the thing, Geraldine. I don't know if that's the case or whether we're just so used to now people skirting around the issues and not being very clear about very difficult positions. Um, I don't know that she was necessarily overtly aggressive. I just think it's really quite stunning these days to see someone take a view that's difficult and argue it. 
Can I just add to what Claire said there? The polls showed that um, Jacinta Price came out with the highest approval rating out of any figure in the voice campaign. So she had a net positive of 10, higher than anybody else, any other person in that. And I think that it comes down to exactly what Claire has said there, that she said what she thought, she said it clearly and directly, and that really resonated with people. It's very interesting. Look, we're going to have to go. I, I, I wonder if it's possible to ask you all for a one-word or two-word suggestion for 2024. What do you think it'll be like, Parnell? I think we're going to have a great big debate around social cohesion and multiculturalism, and I think it's really important that we pin everything under the watchwords that I've used, liberal democracy. Claire? I'm going for artificial intelligence. Ah. I think we're going to be talking about that a lot. And Sean? Surprising. Surprising. Okay. <laughs> One word, even better. Okay, look, thank you all very much indeed. Um, that was nicely surprising. Um, Sean Kelly, uh, Parnell McGuinness and Claire Kimball, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Geraldine. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.